1867, a psychiatric hospital was opened in Victoria, Australia, and for the next 126 years, it would carry out procedures such as lobotomies and electroshock therapy on patients classed as lunatics. Some were as young as 12. The 13,000 people who were killed here have left their mark on the former lunatic asylum, and today there are countless reports of visitors being bitten and scratched by unseen assailants, and disembodied screams and cries are heard along the empty corridors. This location has earned a terrifying reputation, and some who've experienced it for themselves after dark believe that doesn't even scratch the surface of what's actually going on here. Tonight, join me as we head down under and investigate Aradale Lunatic Asylum. episode 11 of How Haunted, a weekly paranormal podcast where each episode we explore the horrible history and terrifying ghost stories of one of the most haunted places on planet Earth. I'm Rob Kirkup, author, paranormal historian and ghost hunter from the northeast of England. Allow me to be your guide as we dare to investigate in depth the often dark and troubled history of each location, and of course, the chilling tales of the ghosts that reside within. This week we head to Ararat, a rural city in southwest Victoria, Australia, and ask the question just how haunted is Aradale Lunatic Asylum? Listener discretion is advised, as each episode of How Haunted will feature gruesome tales, horrific happenings, bloody murder, and ghosts. So many ghosts. Listen on if you dare. In his 2015 book Shrinks, The Untold Story of Psychiatry, Jeffrey A. Lieberman writes, The purpose of the earliest mental institutions was neither treatment nor cure, but rather the enforced segregation of inmates from society. Aradale Lunatic Asylum, originally called Ararat Lunatic Asylum, was an Australian psychiatric hospital located in Ararat, a rural city in southwest Victoria. Aradale and its two sister asylums at Kew and Beechwood 
were commissioned to accommodate the growing number of lunatics in the colony of Victoria. Construction began in 1864 to the designs of G.W. Vivian and John James Clark, and it was built as its own town, cut off from the outside world, as in Victorian times it was believed madness was contagious, so this was necessary to protect the nearby townsfolk. The site was complete with orchards, vineyards and market gardens. The courtyards were walled with ha-ha walls. This type of wall was common in asylums at the time, as they offered an optical illusion, with the wall appearing from the outside to be low, and therefore not raising any suspicion as to what may be on the other side of it. However, from the inside it would be completely inescapable, as a deep trench would be dug, making the wall, in the case of Aradale, 12 feet high. In 1867, the Ararat Asylum officially opened, although patient records prove that the first patients, or inmates as they were called here, were being treated in 1865, two years earlier. This will have likely been those deemed criminally insane, being taken out of the prison system and moved to somewhere considered more suitable. Originally only being designed to house 250, overcrowding was immediately a problem, leading to more buildings being constructed. During the life of the asylum, there were up to 63 buildings within the town. The darker constructions within the Aradale complex included gallows, a morgue and its very own graveyard. Before long it wasn't just the criminally insane being held here, as anyone suffering from mental illness became inmates of the lunatic asylum. Mental illness was so poorly understood that those with autism, Down syndrome, epilepsy, homosexuality and postnatal depression were held at Aradale. At the height of its 126 years, it housed a thousand patients, which comprised of men, women and children as young as 12, and had 500 staff members. In December of 1886, the asylum took control of the old Bluestone Ararat Jail, which had been built in 1859, and this opened up as J-Ward. J-Ward was where the criminal and dangerous male inmates would be held, who the prison system believed to be insane. Some of the most dangerous prisoners in all of Australia, and even some shipped over from England, were imprisoned here. The cast of criminals included gang member, and the focus of the movie Chopper, Mark Chopper-Reed, Gary Webb, who you'll hear all about later, and Jay Ward's oldest inmate, Bill Wallace. Bill shot a man for smoking in a cafe in 1926, and refused to speak to doctors, so he was held at Aradale for 64 years. 57 of them being at J Ward, before dying at the age of 108. It was very easy to be committed to the asylum, as only two signatures were required. But getting out was far more difficult, as this required eight signatures. Considering this, it's little surprise that the average length of stay at Aradale for psychiatric patients was 23 years and four months. During the time at the asylum, the inmates would be subject to a wide range of treatments. Some were humiliating, such as communal underwear, total lack of privacy and public contempt. Some were designed to affect the subject psychologically, including restraint bags, being strapped to chairs for hours, sometimes days, isolation boxes and being immobilised in hot and cold baths with no way out until somebody lets them out. 
What's more, inmates were barely treated as people. They had no dental care, so many of them were missing teeth. Very basic food, as staff would take the better food home for themselves. And it's been reported that rape of inmates by staff was commonplace, with an abortion chair, say in regular usage. Medical procedures were regularly conducted upon inmates, often without any anaesthetic and without consent. The two most infamous treatments that were carried out at the Aradale Lunatic Asylum were lobotomies and electroshock treatment. A lobotomy is a neurosurgical procedure to sever the connections to the brain's prefrontal lobe. It was believed that this lobe was what caused the person to have mental illness. This procedure was done initially by drilling a hole into the skull and inject ethanol into the hole to kill the fibres linking those sections of the brain. This was done with no anaesthetic. Later an instrument was devised that would be inserted into the hole in the skull and turned and a loop of wire would cut the connections. Walter Freeman, who wasn't the first to perform lobotomies but he popularised the procedure in the States saw that psychiatric hospitals, much like Aradale, didn't have trained neurosurgeons. So he devised a new way of performing the controversial operation. In 1946, he performed the first transorbital lobotomy. This utilised a new piece of surgical equipment similar to an ice pick, which went in through the eye socket rather than the skull. This involved lifting up the upper eyelid and placing the point of a thin surgical instrument under the eyelid and against the top of the eye socket. A mallet was used to drive the tool, called an orbitoclast, through the thin layer of bone and into the brain along the plane of the bridge of the nose. This was done to each eye in turn, but he boasted that he could do both eyes at the same time and complete the procedure in under 10 minutes. Side effects of lobotomies include loss of motor function, loss of cognitive function, epilepsy, incontinence and death. The transorbital lobotomy had a 14% fatality rate. Lobotomies were common at Aradale. This ended in the 1950s when antipsychotic and antidepressant medicines were created. These were found to be much more effective and infinitely more humane. Electroshock therapy was developed in 1938 and this involves electrical currents being circulated through the brain with the belief that this will change the brain's electrical activity and lessen the symptoms of the inmate's mental health issues. Aradale Lunatic Asylum operated until 1993 and is now, rather ironically, a ghost town. It is maintained as a museum and a large part of the former Lunatic Asylum belongs to Melbourne Polytechnic, where they've established a campus here. There's also a vineyard, lavender farm and an olive grove. There are tours offered around the former asylum and even ghost walks. In those 126 years, it's been written that over 13,000 inmates and staff members died here, although official sources claim that number to be closer to 3,000. This amount of misery, mistreatment and death could certainly leave an emotional scar on a location, and many believe this very much to be the case here. Some say Aradale Lunatic Asylum is the most haunted place in all of Australia. Ghost tours and ghost hunts are available, 
and there have been many reports of visitors feeling nauseous, fainting, and experiencing sudden pains. These rumoured hauntings began almost as soon as the asylum closed down. When workers came in to repurpose and refurbish the complex in 1997, there were immediately reports of banging from within rooms they knew to be empty, and objects were moving around on their own. The emotions of the past seemed to have been picked up by these workers too, as men that had worked together and been good friends for years, would suddenly find themselves fighting for no reason whatsoever, actually wanting to cause serious harm to their friend. The moment they were outside of the Aradale facility, they could not comprehend what had happened to them. Visitors have complained of a sudden, sharp headache when entering certain rooms at Aradale, unaware that these rooms are where lobotomies were performed on unwilling inmates. At J Ward, where the dangerous, violent, psychotic prisoners were held, there's one room where people suddenly feel inexplicably afraid, terrified, to the point where they're crying and shaking, delirious with fear. The moment they're removed from the room, they return to normal, and seem incapable of remembering why it was they were so fearful only moments earlier. If that isn't enough, other visitors to J Ward have claimed to be pushed, bitten and scratched. Noises are heard, including ticking clocks, in rooms with no clocks, and methodical banging. J Ward is said to be haunted by three prisoners that were hung at Aradale, and then buried in unmarked graves. The graves are only marked with three scratches on the prison wall. These three unknown inmates have been blamed for the feeling of hands around visitors' throats. The identity of these spectres may be unknown, but there are a number of characters from the asylum's history which are believed to remain to this day. The first of these is George Fiddymont. He was the last governor of the jail, which would become J Ward. He was given a tour of the compound when he collapsed and died of a heart attack whilst walking down a staircase. Tour guides and visitors claim to hear heavy footsteps made by boots walking up and down the stairs, but when they check it out there's nobody there. The blame for these footsteps is laid at the former governor. Nurse Kerry haunts the woman's ward. She worked here in the 1800s and is one of the friendliest spirits to be found at the asylum. She has been seen throughout the area where female inmates were treated. She didn't die here, so it's believed that her job meant so much to her that she was drawn back here after her death. Gary Webb, one of the violent inmates of J Ward that I mentioned earlier, was born into a difficult life, with his father being a lifelong criminal and a paedophile, and his mother being an alcoholic. By the age of 11, he himself had begun a life of crime. In 1982, he was arrested and locked up at Aradale. He was caught by a passing policeman while trying to rob a pizzeria. Webb shot both the policeman and the woman who ran the pizza shop. Both survived, but the woman was confined to a wheelchair for life as a result of her injuries. Gary Webb was put in prison for 14 years, with a chance of early release based on good behaviour. However, good behaviour was never on the cards, as Webb began writing manuscripts for the media, all about the horrendous atrocities he planned to commit when he was released. One was titled Blueprint for Urban Warfare, and spoke of him committing massacres upon his release from prison. The blueprint listed 49 combat situations as he called them. He planned to put severed fingers into cigarette dispensing machines and blood into drink dispensers. He also wrote of bombing busy public buildings, assassinations, poisoning of water supplies and random public shootings. As a result, a special law was passed to keep Webb locked up for life. 
Every time Webb made a request at Arradale and it was denied, he would mutilate himself. He cut off parts of his ears, he cut off his left nipple, he swallowed corrosive liquids, and he even cut his own penis off three times. The third time it was too damaged to be reattached. He was hospitalised over 70 times. Webb died on the 11th of June 1993, aged only 38 after swallowing razor blades. It's said that he still haunts the room at Arradale that was his in life, and he screams for people to get out. The room that was once the superintendent's office has had visitors complaining of burning sensations in their throat or a bitter taste in their mouth. This has been attributed to people tapping into the spirit of Dr William Mullen, a former superintendent who died here in 1912 by swallowing cyanide. I'd personally love to conduct a paranormal investigation at Arradale Lunatic Asylum one day, but it's on the opposite side of the world to me. So instead, I spoke with an Australian mad enough to take on Arradale Lunatic Asylum at night and found out what was waiting for him there, in the darkness. Find out what he had to say next on How Haunted. Young is a Bram Stoker-nominated and Australian Shadows award-winning writer and editor, and sometimes he's a ghost hunter. He was the founding president of the Australian Horror Writers Association from 2005 to 2010, and one of the creative minds behind the internationally acclaimed Midnight Echo magazine, for which he also served as executive editor. I spoke to him about an investigation he took part at at Arradale Lunatic Asylum over the weekend of the 3rd to 5th of October 2014, and he was kind enough to let me read his report of the events that unfolded. He approaches every occurrence with rational thinking, and this thinking is detailed throughout. The big question he hoped to answer, much like what we do weekly on this podcast, is find out if Arradale really is haunted, and if so, how haunted. Here's a report of what happened in Marty's own words. The weekend was brilliantly organised by my pal Jeff Brown, and we had the Australian Paranormal Society there running investigations. Bill and his team were great, in fact beyond great, extending every warm welcome to those of us who were there, attending the weekend retreat, letting us take part in investigations, use their equipment, and answer any and all questions we had. Some of the things that have happened at Arradale in the past were truly horrific. An asylum was supposed to have been a place of comfort, but not even 100 years ago, our knowledge of mental health was in its infancy. We knew nothing, and unfortunately it was only because of what happened at places like Arradale that we now have the knowledge that we do. Even still, leaving incontinent patients naked in their cells, where they would defecate wherever they wanted, only for them and their cells to be hosed down at the end of each day. 
surgical operations and human experimentation performed without anaesthetic, while the waiting patient could hear it all unfold in the small waiting cell connected to the operating room, and worse, watch it through the peephole in the door. Rapes in an abortion chair that got regular use. Day pens in which the patients were thrown every day, regardless of whether, where they would die of hypothermia or heat stroke. A morgue that wasn't fit for a pig, with heads left outside in the sun so the skin would dry and peel away. Limbs were tied to the branches of trees in order to drain. Lobotomies were performed to cure patients of any and all affliction. The list of atrocities goes on. And it's no wonder with such a history that the place is reportedly haunted. Aradale is huge, comprising of numerous buildings. The men's ward, the women's ward, staff quarters, admin offices, hospital morgue, chapel, forensic unit, the incontinence ward, aptly nicknamed the shitty six, plus a sewing room, electrician's area, a carpenter's area, etc. It's all spread out over a huge area. The asylum is isolated from the nearby town of Ararat, and when you're there, you feel separate from the world. You feel isolated. Scientist brain comment. From the start, the environment imposes itself upon you. You're at an abandoned asylum for the insane, with a terrible history and numerous reports of paranormal activity. Already your senses are going to be more heightened, especially at night. It's very easy to work yourself up in such an environment. That's all well and good, says the other side of me, but that doesn't explain a lot of what happened, which was recorded on several devices and had multiple witnesses, myself included. The Australian Paranormal Society ran investigations across the two nights, and we were allowed to take part in these. This was fascinating, and something I am very interested in, and hope to do far more in the future. I learned a lot about how one might go about performing an investigation, and what equipment to use, and the team were just wonderful. A brilliant and professional group, passionate about what they do, and more than willing to chat and explain things. Okay then, so what took place that left me scratching my scientific brain? On the first night, I went off with a large group for a tour and a history lesson of the asylum. The history of mental health is staggering in its horror. Our tour guide, Eerie Nate, also recounted several anecdotes from his time there, some of which were pretty creepy. Going through the woman's ward, locking up one night, only to hear footsteps rushing towards him, then somebody banging on the other side of the door that divided the hall, hard enough to make the partitioned wall shake. Scientist brain comment, this is hearsay. Second-hand information. I have no way to confirm anything. Yes, I know I can't use that in a court of law, but let me finish. One of the Australian Paranormal Society guys, let's call them APS, called Lionel, was outside at a different part of the asylum from us, having a smoke, when he saw Bill's wife Amanda waving to him. Bill is the head of the APS. She was indicating for him to follow her into the men's ward. This is a highly active ward, so I've been told. Then Bill himself came into view, calling out to him, saying he needed help. The problem was, Lionel knew Bill and Amanda were elsewhere. Bill was talking to a group of people on the other side of the main hall area, and Amanda was inside the hall. The APS went into the ward to investigate, and ended up recording vile comments and threats on their equipment from something that called itself The Beast. Apparently the APS have been dealing with this entity in the past, and they don't believe it to be human. Probably most shocking of all was that Rick, the team's medium, was having his arm grabbed when they were inside the ward conducting an investigation 
and he was being jerked back towards one of the cells. He managed to put his hands out and grab the doorway to stop himself from being forced inside. This was all captured on film, and I've seen this film and it's quite something. Scientist brain comment. Could he have grown dizzy and lost his balance, stumbling in a way that made it look like he was being pulled towards the cell? Unlikely, as those who were with him who saw it happen said it was as if someone or something had grabbed him and jerked him backwards. The video seems to support this too. I don't know Rick that well and I really didn't get a chance to speak to him, but he struck me as an open and honest man, not a prankster who would do something like this. Rick, Bill and the rest of the APS take what they do far too seriously for any kind of carry-on like this. So that whole episode is very weird and it's hard to explain it in a simple way. Visual manifestations, audio experiences and physical violence. But I wasn't there to see any of it first hand. Later that night I was with Chris and Tracy, two of my writer pals, and we had at first wanted to join the APS with their experiments in the men's ward, but they had locked themselves inside so as not to have any interruptions, so we decided to go for a wander through the women's ward. We hadn't gone far before something happened that was kind of cool. I was at the back talking about something with Chris up front and Tracy in the middle. I heard someone tell me to shh. I thought it was Chris but he turned around thinking Tracy had said it but she hadn't and hadn't even heard it. Only Chris and I had heard it clear and unmistakable and right between us. Scientist brain comment. You don't know how the acoustics of the building work so this could have been somebody else speaking somewhere in a nearby room and it only sounded like it came from within your group. This is true and I don't have a good argument against this, other than to say that it sounded like it had come from right ahead of me, and behind Chris, but right there with us, telling us to shut up. Nearing 2am, I was with a group of four others, and while they were not willing to venture into the first level of the men's ward, where all of the earlier activity took place, we did go upstairs, and that was frightening. I was at the back of the group again, and partway through could not shake the feeling that someone or something was following us, walking right behind me, almost touching me. The others in the group felt uncomfortable, their skin prickling, and after a few minutes I had to walk backwards, keeping the torch shining behind me. It was utterly terrifying. I cannot express just how terrifying it was. Scientist brain comment. You were a wuss, easily freaked out, you know. Too many horror movies plus you read and write horror. Yes, true, and perhaps it was a result of the environment, plus hearing the encounters from earlier in the night that caused me to freak out, I don't know. All I know is how I felt, and it wasn't like anything I've felt before. I felt immensely uncomfortable. There have been times in the past where I freaked myself out, but at those times I will giggle almost uncontrollably, knowing I'm freaking myself out. At Arradale, there was no way in hell that I could giggle. I was more scared than I've ever been before. An interesting side note, I found out once I was home again that the St Christopher's necklace I wear, it used to be my mother's, the medallion and the chain, but I broke the chain one day and lost the medallion. My wife Tanya bought me a new medallion for my 40th and had my mother's chain fixed at the same time. It had been blessed by a priest before Tanya gave it to me. I was being protected without even knowing it, although another interesting side note, I had planned to take my necklace off before the investigations, curious to know if it would cause me to be more open to things around me, but I couldn't take it off. I didn't have the courage to do so. Not bad for a sceptic, eh? 
On the second night, I was part of a large group doing investigations, and at the start of the night in the woman's ward, we were all inside a large room. We called out hello as loud as we could in order to stir up activity. We did this three times, going dead silent in between, in order to listen for any replies. Banging on walls, doors opening or closing, anything. We heard or saw nothing, so decided to move on, and right at that moment, the small bell next to the main door rang. It was a solid ring, lasting a second or two, and as clear as day. We checked outside and there was nobody around. No one inside was in any position to ring the bell either. Scientist brain comment, fascinating, but without base parameters detailing wind flow throughout the old building, plus structural reports covering settling, and things like day and night expansion and contraction, how can you be sure that it wasn't something natural that caused this? I can't, it's a valid point. All investigations of this nature need to have base parameters covering such things, also covering magnetic fields that can be picked up around the location from man-made sources. But there was no wind. No one was opening or closing the door, or moving near the bell. I don't think air currents caused the bell to ring because it would have had to be in a fair gust, and we would have felt that, wouldn't we? The truth is, I don't know what caused the ringing. We were calling out to any spirits to make themselves known, and then the bell rang. Make of that what you will. I'm still not sure what to make of it. We then broke into small groups of around four, and we went off to various locations. There we could call out to any spirits in the area, while recording the experience using voice recorders, cameras and EMF meters. At one stage, my group was located on a stairwell, with me near the top of the stairs and the rest of the group below me. We were asking questions. Is anybody there? Can you make a noise if you can hear us? Were you happy here? Were you a staff member? That kind of thing. And then our EMF meter went crazy. Right then, I had the same feeling I had the night before, that something really unhappy, angry, evil, I don't know, was standing near me, just out of my sight. It freaked me out again, big time. I couldn't take my eyes off the top of the stairs, knowing that the moment I did, something would rush down them and grab me, or shove me. A moment later, Rick the Medium called out to us all, asking us to gather in one of the large nearby rooms. Going down the stairs, I had to walk backwards again, terrified, absolutely terrified. My skin crawling, my torch shining up the stairs, always up the stairs. Something was there, I knew that without a doubt, and it was waiting for me to look away. When we got back to the big room, Rick told us that he had felt the presence of the beast, the entity from the night before. It wasn't safe for us to be in small groups, we were told, because it was following us around, and it really wasn't a nice thing, very likely not even human. Scientist brain comment, did you say anything though, or hear anything? Remember, you were in a spooky building on a paranormal investigation with all the knowledge of the asylum's history, plus incidents that had taken place the night before. How can you not be susceptible to thinking everything was ghosts and demons? I didn't say anything and I didn't hear anything either, but to tell the truth, despite other people in the group claiming to have heard and seen things, I was a little disappointed that there were so many of us involved in the investigation. Too many people making noises. I wanted to be there with only a handful of people, but that wasn't to be. So no, I don't think I was feeling the oppressive weight of the environment and the situation. My group had also just come from another room where nothing had happened. That room had felt empty. There was another group near us too. So it just felt like there was too many people around. I felt crowded when I didn't want to be. 
so my group went in search of a different location and went upstairs, but all of the rooms there were locked. So we sat on the stairwell. I was feeling despondent by then, thinking too many people, nothing was going to happen. Too much of the asylum had been locked up and was now inaccessible. So no, the situation wasn't getting to me. Scientist brain comment. You said the EMF meter went crazy when you were on the stairs, right? And you're accustomed to believing that this indicates increased spirit activity. So standing on a dark stairwell, the EMF meter going off, with the history, location, etc. Could all of this have affected you? Look, I don't know, maybe. There must come a point when you stop looking for excuses and say, that was strange, that wasn't normal. Yes, this should only be once all other possible causes and explanations have been exhausted. But EMF meters have been going off before that too. And I didn't get that frightening sensation then. On the stairs, the feeling came over me. That was immediately terrifying. And exactly the same as the one I'd had the night before, walking through the upper level of the men's ward. And then for Rick to say the same entity they'd encountered the night before in the men's ward was there with us. That freaked me out completely. It felt like the same thing. Unfortunately, I didn't experience anything else after that. And we had to call our investigation off when most of the other buildings were locked. I really wanted to investigate, to properly investigate the men's ward again. Only this time with a full appreciation of just how dangerous this game can be. Perhaps next time. So to wrap up, do I think Aradale Lunatic Asylum is haunted? I don't know, but I do know that I will take it far more seriously than I did before. Things happened over the weekend that I can't happily explain. But then I don't have the base parameters for the location to use as a benchmark to know when things were changing. I do know our minds can become susceptible under stress, but I don't know how the wind funnels through that place, or where the air is naturally colder. I don't know how the structure settles at night, or what subsidence, if any, has affected it. Are there magnetic fields about that could be causing audible and visual hallucinations? I don't know. I'm certain the APS know. They have done a lot of solid research and they believe the place to be haunted. Could Aradale Lunatic Asylum really be haunted? My scientist brain says that it could very well be. Marty signed off by saying, One other thing I do know is that I hope to be back to do some more investigating. Thanks for speaking with me, Marty. You can find out all about Marty and his writing, such as his latest book, Behind the Midnight Blinds, at martyyoung.com. Thank you for joining me for this episode. You can follow How Haunted on Twitter at at HowHauntedPod or over on Instagram at HowHauntedPod where you will see photos galore relating to the Aradale Lunatic Asylum. If you want to get in touch, you can do so by visiting the website at www.how-haunted.com or you can email me directly at rob at how-haunted.com. Feedback, location suggestions and your own experiences are all more than welcome. Feel free to ask me any questions you like and I'll answer them all on a dedicated Q&A episode. If you'd like to support the show and get early access to episodes, you can join the Patreon for less than the price of a pint. You'll also get access to exclusive episodes where you can join me on an actual paranormal investigation and hear the audio as it happened, 
such as the episodes that are available now at Chillingham Castle and the Edinburgh Vaults. If you aren't a fan of Patreon, or perhaps would prefer to make a one-off donation to the podcast, why not buy me a coffee? All the information on how you can support How Haunted is in the podcast description and on the website. If you've enjoyed this episode, if enjoy is the right word, then please subscribe and review the podcast on your podcast provider of choice. It really does help other people to find this podcast. I have a copy of my book Ghosts of York up for grabs. If you'd like to enter it's incredibly easy to do so. All you need to do is follow me on Twitter and or Instagram. My username for both is HowHauntedPod. You'll get one entry for each, so you can enter twice by following on both. The competition will end on Christmas Eve 2022 and the winner will be announced on Twitter and the first podcast episode after the closing date. Next time out we return to the UK and in particular we go to Lancashire to a place famed for the trial of 12 accused witches, dark magic and devil worship. There have been many claims of unexpected phenomena recurring here, mostly connected to the executed witches who are said to return to their meeting spot in death. Other ghosts unrelated to the witch trials are being seen here and there are even UFO sightings on a regular basis. This place has a reputation for being one of the most haunted places anywhere on earth and this has led to it attracting ghost hunters from all over the UK every Halloween night. But does it deserve the infamous reputation that it's gained in recent years? Let's find out together next week when we make our way up Pendle Hill. Thank you so much for accompanying me for our paranormal adventures once again. Stay safe and join me next time when we will once again ask the question, How Haunted? How Haunted?